Thank you, Derek, for the kind introduction and for the invitation to present uh, at the seminar. And I'm also grateful to Eugene Rogan, who couldn't be here today, and the Middle East Center for co-hosting. It is really wonderful to be back at St. Anthony's. Um, I have to admit, it's a bit surreal to be standing here uh, in this new building delivering this talk, given how many times I sat in the audience, uh, either in the old library or in the Nissan Lecture Theater, uh, during the course of my MPhil, which feels like it was just yesterday. Um, but it's also fitting, in a way, to return to the birthplace, as it were, of the project I want to share with you tonight. For without my time studying at this college, I'm not sure I would have ended up finding my way to the story uh, that I'm about to recount or the research questions that led me there in the first place. In the summer between the two years of my MPhil here at St. Anthony's, I had the great fortune of being able to study Arabic in Damascus, Syria, and to make my first trip to Lebanon. As most first-time visitors to Beirut can attest, the city can lull its guests into a rose-tinted sense of intoxication. One is besotted by the landscape, the people, the meze, and of course, the plentiful arak. But for the historian, darker shadows abound. Countless buildings bear witness to fierce fighting from the Civil War and still dot the city, even as so many sites of violence have been transformed into venues of forgetting. During an evening at the iconic BO18 nightclub, designed by the architect Bernard Khoury, a Lebanese friend explained to me how the subterranean design was meant to evoke a submerged coffin, arousing memories of wartime atrocities. For the club was built on the site of Quarantina, a former Palestinian district overrun by militiamen from the right-wing Christian Lebanese front. The ensuing massacre, whose forgotten 40-year anniversary passed last month, left more than 1,000 people dead. The willful amnesia about the civil war, as the scholar Maya Mikdashi has argued, necessitates public memory and narration. This is particularly true, Mikdashi writes, when there is no agreed upon narrative of the past. We should recognize the traumas that we experienced and inflicted upon each other during the war and the traumas that we continue to experience through the imposed silence of the post-Civil War era. It is largely to the credit of an entire generation of post-war Lebanese artists and filmmakers that the silence around the Civil War and Israel's 1982 invasion has been broken. In particular, I'm thinking about the works of artists like Akram Zatari and Walid Raad, and films like Zia Dweri's Beirut El Gharbiya, West Beirut, Nadine Labaki's Wahala Lawain, Where Do We Go Now? These cultural producers have helped ensure that the period between 1975 and 1990 remains an object of public inquiry and debate today. Increasingly, there are documentary means available to revisit the impact of the Civil War as well. Archival collections, like the Umam Documentation Center in Beirut's southern suburb of Harat Hreik, the extensive collection of the Institute for Palestine Studies in Verdun, and the prevalence of film documentaries, like the multi-part series Harb Lubnan and Massacre, which was produced by German filmmakers interviewing perpetrators of the Sabra and Shatila massacre, 
as well as oral history about the war, enable crucial scholarly study of this period. Can one say the same about Israel's 1982 war in Lebanon? As many of you likely know, in the summer of 1982, the Israeli government, under the leadership of Likud Prime Minister Menachem Begin and Minister of Defense and future Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, launched an invasion in the south of Lebanon. This was largely under the pretext of stopping rocket fire on the Galilee from militia members of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, who had formed a state within a state in the south. This Palestinian presence had also raised tensions with local Shiite Muslims and Maronite Christians, precipitating in part the 1975 civil war. Israeli leaders were increasingly anxious about the staying power of Palestinian calls for self-determination and the growing links between Palestinians inside the occupied territories and throughout the Arab diaspora. Ariel Sharon, who took charge of the plans over Lebanon, aimed to destroy PLO military infrastructure and undermine the organization as a political entity in order to facilitate the absorption of the West Bank by Israel. Israeli strategic thinkers sought the emergence of a pliant, Christian-dominated government as an ally to their north and hoped to sign a peace treaty with the neighboring country. But after encircling and entering Beirut that summer, mounting civilian casualties raised international condemnation. Between 1982 and 1985, there were an estimated 19,000 total Lebanese killed, half of whom were civilians as well as 657 Israelis. The war engendered soul-searching and vocal criticism of the Israeli state. Internally, a committee of inquiry found fault with Sharon and several members of the cabinet, although the political ramifications were relatively short-lived. I myself witnessed the lavish full-page photo spreads and wistful coverage of Sharon's death in Israel two years ago, a public mourning that attested to the power of selective memory. Globally, the war marked a turning point in the relationship between Jews and the state of Israel. Supporters of Israel abroad were paralyzed by the invasion and its aftershocks. Begin had described the invasion as a, quote, war of choice, which was an anathema to the defensive ethos of the dominant Zionist narrative that animated these communities. For modern Jewish historians, international condemnation of the war raised piercing questions about the nature of Jewish power and the meaning of political Zionism in the modern age. The war in Lebanon also triggered political and artistic upheaval in Israel, from the growing strength of the Peace Now movement to searing poetry and prose, like the dystopian novel of the writer Amos Kenan, Baderech La'en Chorod, The Road to Ein Chorod, one of the defining accounts of the war remains Ari Fulman's award-winning 2008 film, Waltz with Bashir. Fulman's film, however, exemplifies the phenomenon of yorim v'bochim, or shooting and crying, portraits of Israeli trauma and retrospective misgivings about military action that focus on perpetrators without actually examining the consequences of war for the victims of the violence. Yet despite its lasting importance and its cultural impact, 
published accounts of the history of Israel's Lebanon war remain largely the purview of journalists or the partisan memoirs of participants. In parallel ways to how the Lebanese deal with the civil war, 1982 is an episode that exists as a cultural touchstone and a site of conflicting memories for Israelis, but it lacks the sustained scholarly attention that marks other aspects of the Israeli past. Unlike the revisionist debates over the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the extensive accounts of the June 1967 war, or the re-examination of the 1973 war that has recently surfaced to mark its 40th anniversary, Lebanon largely remains a black box of Israeli historiography. Among the few Israeli scholars who have addressed the 1982 Lebanon war, it is described in traumatic terms. As Eyal Zisser has written, Israelis, quote, prefer to forget and suppress the war. The historian Asher Kaufman has argued that there still exists a deep silence, denial, and selective remembrance around the events in Lebanon. For some Israelis, Kaufman posits, it is a, quote, exonerated war, and it has even become a war of pride. Part of the reason has been the lack of primary source material with which to write about the events of 1982. But this is no longer the case. My own research in the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library has yielded a trove of new documents about U.S. involvement in the war. I was also shocked to find a raft of newly opened files about Lebanon in the Israel State Archives, many of them chilling in detail and scope, largely a result of a 30-year declassification rule that coincided with my time in Jerusalem during doctoral research, the opening of these files allows for a historical reassessment of a war that remains a turning point in modern Middle Eastern and Israeli history. The documents I found in both the American and Israeli archives shed a great deal of light on the motivations of the Begin and Reagan governments before the invasion and the discussions of cabinet members during the fighting itself including new revelations about Israeli and American actions during the infamous massacre of Palestinians by Falange militiamen in the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps of Beirut in September of 1982. But these revelations, however significant, are only one important part of the story. For Lebanon was also an experience that shaped an entire generation in Israel, disrupting the image of a veritable David fighting Goliath a trope that was now inverted. Here were the consequences of unbridled military might, which planted the seeds of doubt and fomented a great deal of internal opposition. Amos Oz, a beloved Israeli writer and leading public intellectual, reflected some years later how the experience of 1982 shaped the nation's psyche. After Lebanon, he said, we can no longer ignore the monster, even when it is dormant or half asleep or when it peers out from behind the lunatic fringe. After Lebanon, we must not pretend that the monster dwells only in the offices of Mayor Kahana, or only on General Sharon's ranch, or only in Raful's carpentry shop, or only in the Jewish settlements in the West Bank. It dwells, drowsing, virtually everywhere, even in the folk-singing guts of our common myths, even in our soul melodies. We did not leave it behind in Lebanon with the Hezbollah, it is here, among us, a part of us, like a shadow, in Hebron, in Gaza, in the slums and in the suburbs, in the kibbutzim, and in my lake Kinneret. For Oz, like many people 
who lived through the events of 1982, the war was a devastating moment of rupture. Given the valence of this period and this war, the historian is also in a position to uncover individual stories of veterans and survivors to provide texture and depth where the minutes of classified meetings often fall short. Oral history is one way to reverse the amnesia that McDashie warns about in the case of Lebanon, to surface the public memory and narration of the traumas of the war. And as I want to suggest in the remainder of my talk, the historian may also be able to write across national borders to reveal events obscured by the violence. What these revelations may tell us about our contemporary dilemmas, if anything, remains an open question. I therefore want to travel back to one of my first interviews about 1982. During an early research trip to Israel, I met this man, Chagai Tamir, a decorated pilot who fought in the war and now lives in Jaffa. We sat for a very long interview during which Tamir recounted his childhood in Kibbutz Hazorea, his career in the Air Force and the progression of Israeli wars. A growing discomfort underpinned his retelling of an incident in 1982. Tamir was called up on reserve duty that June. Although he and many of his fellow pilots were opposed to the invasion from the start. And in his first mission, a clip of which I want to display for you to hear you to hear what he had to say about it, he was ordered to fly over the southern Lebanese city of Sidon, or Saida in Arabic. In the course of an operation over the edge of the Palestinian Ain al-Hilwa refugee camp, Tamir was given instructions over the radio to bomb a target in the city below. And let's listen to what he had to say. Yeah, and near Beirut. It, it was near Sidon. Near Sidon. Sidon. Near Khilwa. camp, uh, refugee camp. And uh, number one got a, got a, got a, a one target. And for me, they gave me a, a, a target, certain target. As I, I saw this target, and I was completely convinced that this target is or a hospital or a school. It was a big, big uh, building on the top of the hill with roads coming uh, from, from all around. In, in isolated, isolated uh, somehow. In Enerhill. Enerhill, yeah. And uh, I, I myself, uh, uh, decided that I am refusing to, to bomb this, to bomb this target. Uh, uh, and uh, but I wasn't still brave enough. Brave enough. I. I. Uh, Dive to, to this target. I didn't uh, uh, press the pickle uh, button, and I, I, uh, I say, I got out of the timing uh, about the city and pickled the bombs 
this very much. insubordination or this refusal on his part, which normally would have led to a court-martialing, didn't come to pass because Tamir was a very well-known pilot and he had been given many awards and was decorated for his service before 1982. The incident of refusal was not something Tamir shared publicly until it surfaced in a story by a Haaretz journalist in the context of the pilot's letter of 2003 a joint initiative of 27 active and retired pilots who refused to fly targeted killing missions over the West Bank and Gaza Strip during the Second Intifada, arguing that they would inevitably endanger innocent civilians. The story of Haggai's refusal to bomb what he saw as an illegitimate target resonated as an ethical act, the recognition that even war has its moral limits. A combat pilot's personal judgment in the midst of fighting the triumph of an inner voice that deliberated inside a cockpit, countering the demands of a national army. War is so often associated with losing your individual identity to fight for the collective. And here was an example of one individual's defiance. This defiance struck me to the core. It was a very personal act of refusal, a private decision in a time of war. Chagai Tamir did not claim to be a pacifist, and yet his actions show that justice and morality can never be separated from the claims of the military 
or the agenda of the nation state. The interview with Tamir stayed in the back of my mind as I continued the research in Israel and later in Lebanon. As a medium, oral history encouraged me to think more about the threads that connect large-scale political decision-making with the actions of individuals on the ground, or in this case, up in the air. Tamir's account restored human agency to traditional military and diplomatic narratives of the war. And yet, it remained the narrative of the pilot. What of the residents of Sidon? How might it be possible to recover the voices of the Palestinian and Lebanese who experienced this war on their own terms? On a return visit to Beirut, I visited the Arab Image Foundation, a nonprofit organization devoted to collecting photography from across the Middle East and preserving these images in an archive. I was told they might have sources that could provide local context and reactions to the 1982 war. The archivist handed me a thin orange volume by Akram Zatari, which turned out to be his recently published book, A Conversation with an Imagined Israeli Filmmaker Named Avi Mograbi. Zatari, in this photo, was born to a Sunni Muslim family in Saida in 1966, and he's a leading contemporary visual artist working in Beirut. He belongs to a generation of artists who move freely between documentation and subjectivity, between archive and memory. Zatari's films and installations, some of which I had seen in Beirut, focus on the memory of 1982 during which he was a 16-year-old boy. But this book just stunned me. It opens with a mention of an alternate idea for a title. Israel's history is my history. In the early days of the fighting, Zatari found himself watching Israeli Merkava tanks drive up his street. These were the first Israelis I saw in my life, Zatari writes, young victorious soldiers riding their noisy tanks. In the book... Zatari recalled the following story. One day in the late summer of 1982, a month after the Israeli invasion, my uncle came to visit, telling us a story. He said there was an Israeli officer who came to visit the public school that my father had headed for 20 years until 1979. The Israeli officer, who was a former student of the school, took part in several air raids on Saida, and one time, he was given orders to bomb a target in Ain al-Hilwa, near the school. It is said that as he approached the target, he flew over the school he attended as a child, so he refused the orders and dropped all the explosives he was carrying into the sea. I froze in disbelief. Surely, this was the same incident involving Haggai Tamir. Somehow, the story had traveled back to Lebanon, and Tamir had been mythologized as a Lebanese Jew, a former resident of Sidon. I knew I must contact Akram Zatari and tell him. The archivist at the Arab Image Foundation gave me his email, and we arranged to meet the next evening. Over a drink, I relayed the details of my interview with the pilot in Jaffa, of his refusal to bomb the school. The story was real. The pilot's name is Chagai Tamir, he is from a German-Jewish family and not from Sidon, but today he lives and practices as an architect in Jaffa, I explained. Zatari was amazed. For him, the school was a place of his childhood, 
where his father worked as the principal and his family would spend weekends in the garden. Zatari asked if I could send along a copy of his book to Tamir, since there was no way of mailing items between Beirut and Tel Aviv. I agreed and wrote to Tamir with news of my discovery that there was indeed a Lebanese account of his refusal. A few weeks later, in early September, I was copied in on the first of many email exchanges between Akram Zatari and Chagai Tamir. As Zatari wrote, I have so many questions for you. We probably lived the same events from two different positions, and this is extremely important for me in the writing of the history of the moments that I lived. The rumors that I talk about around your refusal to bomb Ayn al-Hilwa are known by everyone of my age and older in Saida. After hearing your interview, I am more and more inclined to believe that people assumed you were from a Jewish family from Saida to refuse to bomb a school and that you probably studied there too. I am interested in how people construct the enemy and protect their constructions by believing and disbelieving all sorts of things around them. Tamir's reply came a few hours later. Your email is very exciting, touching, and interesting. I was born in Kibbutz Hazorea, near the city of Haifa. I was raised and educated there. So the truth is that I wasn't one of the students of Ayn al-Hilwa school. But I think it doesn't matter. I took part in several wars and combats as a young pilot, and at the first Lebanon war, I was old enough to understand things that I didn't as a young person. At the time, I was a young architect, and I built our first home in Jerusalem. I went to this war with an internal objection because I felt from the first beginning of this war that this war was totally unjustified. At the mission of Ayn al-Hilwa school, I recognized as an architect that this building must be a school or a hospital. In both cases, it was an illegitimate target. I believe that anyone has to keep a moral limit, even in war. And from my humanistic point of view, the order to bomb the target was illegal whatsoever. Years after the war, I discovered that I wasn't alone, and some of my friends have refused too. These exchanges continued for some time, and Zatari soon invited Tamir to meet with him in Rome. The artist was going to represent Lebanon at the Venice Biennale, a biannual gathering of contemporary artists from across the globe. He wanted to work on a project about Tamir's act of refusal. With some trepidation, Tamir accepted. As soon as he did, he wrote to Zatari, on the background of the last fighting in Gaza, it seems to me very significant to meet you and to try to make something different than violence. I joined Zatari and Tamir for two surreal days in Rome, mediating a conversation about their lives and their backgrounds. Zatari asked Tamir to bring photos of his childhood and his family. Among the documents that Tamir pulled out of his bag was this one, a Gestapo deportation order that he found in a box of his father's personal items at Kibbutz Hazorea. Here was the Israeli pilot bringing the history of the Holocaust to the Lebanese artist, a plea, perhaps, to be understood as a product of historical circumstance, the inevitability of Jewish nationalism that had led his father from Stuttgart to the northern kibbutz. Zatari brought a photo of the Saida school for boys before it was bombed. Tamir recognized it immediately, the same school that was his target, up by a hill just next to the sea. After many hours of conversation, we all took an afternoon walk through the city. Somewhere, on Via de Repetta, Zatari paused and asked me to take a photo of him and Tamir on the street. 
we parted ways with the hope of working on a project emerging out of this story for the Venice Biennale. Several weeks after the meeting, during which time Zatari was preparing his installation, Chagai Tamir wrote to say that he was not comfortable participating. He explained that his refusal was personal in nature and only up to a certain point. It was also kept private for more than 20 years, only known to his family and friends. My refusal did not influence the course of the war, Tamir wrote. It is true that I refused to continue flying at the Air Force after the war, but after the investigation committee of the massacre of Sabra and Shatila and the resignation of Sharon from the government, I returned to fly in reserve for several more years. Tamir concluded by saying that his refusal, quote, belongs to history. This damned war is not a formative event for me, as it is probably engraved and carved in your memory. After a few days, Tamir's initial discomfort gave way to an agreement that he would allow Zatari to tell his story, but without direct participation. And so this is how Zatari's installation, Letter to a Refusing Pilot, unfolded, as the artist's address to Tamir with a vacant seat surrounded by a theater of memory. As Zatari explained at the opening, the installation that was unveiled in the Lebanese pavilion was, quote, a tribute to a person who made an individual choice to refuse military orders even if this refusal would not change the course of war. This is an ethical and an existential choice. The film concerns a soldier who became human, a passage that is so often left out in historical narratives of war. On a large screen, Zatari displayed footage of the rebuilt school today. You can see it in the background with children racing to class and playing in the yard. At one point, a young boy, about the age that Zatari would have been in 1982, ascends to the roof of the school with his friends. They fold up their homework into paper airplanes and launch them over the city. One of the airplanes crosses over the sea and drops its bombs into the water below. Opposite this main screen was a small projector playing original footage of the Israeli airplanes bombing the city in a continuous loop. Between them, a large red velvet movie theater style chair facing the original footage, empty, was waiting for Chagai Tamir to arrive. The Venice Biennale is a unique space for it brings together a cross-section of viewers. Here were Lebanese men and women who had lived through the war and Israeli visitors who may have fought in some capacity, Arabic and Hebrew speakers circulating alongside one another inside the pavilion. Zatari's wish that Tamir would travel to Venice to see the exhibit and to sit on the chair and complete the installation came to pass later that fall. Tamir came to Venice, met again with Akram, and sat in the chair, leaving a gift of a photograph of his plane's shadow over the sea taken on one of his missions. To conclude, what does this individual act of refusal tell us about the behavior of the nation state? And what does the work of historical excavation mean for collective memory and contemporary politics in the Middle East today? In the summer of 2014, during the height of yet another war in Gaza, Israel's main state TV channel, Channel One, dedicated its leading evening debate program to the topic of refusing military orders. After showing a 15-minute report on the story of Chagai Tamir's refusal 
and Akram Zatari's installation in Venice, the host welcomed two former pilots into the studio to assess their reaction and their views. And I want to play you a short clip from that TV program. שטייס, כשהוא באוויר, יטרידו אותו, יטרידו אותו עניינים משפטיים. 
הוא לא עורך דין, הוא לא מבין במשפטים, הוא לא יכול להבין במשפטים, ואסור לו לחשוב על זה. אגב, חגי תמיר אמר דבר מאוד, הוא אמר את זה בקצרה ובהתחלה. כשאתה מבצע את המשימה שלך, אתה מאוד חד, יש לך כמה שניות, או לפעמים דקות, אבל בדרך כלל אין דקות, יש שניות להחליט מה אתה עושה ואיך אתה עושה. והדבר האחרון שצריך לעבור לבן אדם בראש זה עניינים משפטיים. ערכים כן, מוסר כן. מילה אחרונה שלך. As you can see from the pilot's reactions, the individual act of refusal is severed from the broader structure of the state's military and foreign policy. It is but a frozen moment in time, not necessarily emblematic of a personal political position towards a particular war, but rather a reaction to a specific order. The system, in essence, subsumes the individual. In meeting Chagai Tamir, I had romanticized his act of refusal, overlooking the fact that the school was bombed anyway, just a few seconds later, in a moment that clearly elucidated the limits of refusal. So what, then, is the point of this historical excavation? Perhaps, in some small way, these individual acts of refusal can inform broader national consciousness about both the production of violence and its legacy. The historical work also highlighted for me the danger of looking at Israel in isolation from the wider Middle East, Without a sense of how these events were experienced across borders, we are left with either two echo chambers or widespread national amnesia. In the case of Letter to a Refusing Pilot, historical memory and the archive serve as a rejoinder to this amnesia and the disturbing trend of exoneration around 1982. The installation, ostensibly centered on Chagai Tamir's heroic act, but also raising his own complicated position as an inadvertent agent of history. We know who refused, but not who bombed the school right afterwards. Is a powerful tool for recovery, in particular the voices of those who get silenced amidst political violence. It allows us to confront what happens when the Lebanese vocalize their memories of 1982. And most importantly, by revisiting this war, we are forced to look anew at dominant narratives of the Zionist past and Israel's fraught place in the region. The country is so often portrayed as a distinctly separate entity, uneasy and unwelcome, or more crudely, in the words of former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, as a villa in the jungle. But might the events of this war demonstrate Israel's own role in placing itself firmly into regional politics, often with unforeseen consequences. Thank you.